We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Assuming that this works, it's hard to imagine that, that this isn't of that level of impact. And it's, it's because of the, the reason that I said when I started the essay, which is this is intelligence, right? Intelligence is like the fundamental building block for improving things. And up until now, the application of human intelligence has been the building block of improving things in the world. And now if we're going to also have machine intelligence working with us on that, it's hard to overstate the importance of the potential here, I think. Hey, everybody. Today, we have a special bonus episode featuring a discussion between the co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, Mark Andreessen, and the founder of an AI company, Chroma, Anton Shrinikov. I highly recommend Chroma, and I'm grateful to Anton for letting us use this episode. This conversation originally took place on Twitter Spaces, where Anton and Mark talked about Mark's provocative essay called Why AI Will Save the World. In that piece, which we'll link to in the show notes, Mark explains that AI will not destroy the world and may in fact save it. Given how much we talked about AI in the various Doomer debates, we thought that this would be a great episode for us to release. In addition to discussing Mark's essay, they also talk about the best ways to offset the real risks of AI and Mark's plan for how to embrace it. Towards the end of the discussion, Mark takes questions from the audience. Both Mark and Anton have been on our shows before, discussing many of the same themes, and I'll link to their episodes in the show notes. Enjoy. Hello, Mark. Thank you for joining. Hey, good evening, everybody. Thanks for, uh, yeah, thanks for joining. Mr. Mark Andreessen obviously needs no introduction, uh, essentially invented the web, has dropped banger after banger of an essay, um, and the latest Why AI Will Save the World is probably his most provocative uh, since it's time to build, at least in my estimation. The first question is a softball here. What prompted you to write this now? Two things. So one is just, you know, like everybody else, you know, like I've, I've been involved in AI for a long time. I, you know, work, you know, I've studied AI in, in school. And then, um, you know, we've, we've, my firm has invested in a lot of AI and AI related companies and so forth. But like, like, you know, like everybody else, like I have just been tremendously positively shocked and, and impressed by the breakthroughs, you know, that have been happening. And, you know, it started with like 2012 with the sort of the image net breakthroughs and then, you know, cascading into 2017 with transformers and then, all the incredible work happening with like autonomous, you know, vehicles, and then the GPTs that have been, you know, developing, and then the image generators, and so, and then in particular, it's just like over the Christmas break, you know, last year, like a lot of people, like I sat down and like spent a lot of time with at the time GPT three and with with Midjourney, and I was just like, okay, this is happening, right? Like the original neural network paper was written literally eighty years ago, right, in nineteen forty three, and uh, you know, eighty years That's later, amazing like, cybernetics took us this far. Yeah, I actually just read, I just read this great book I really highly recommend called Rise of the Machines by Thomas Ridd. And it's it's a history of uh, the field of cybernetics. It starts in like 19, I don't even know, maybe even before 1940, maybe in the late 30s. And it basically ends in the early 60s. And it turns out there was this entire field of cybernetics, which was like a big deal at the time. And it just kind of, it came and went and like it basically died by the mid 60s. And it was really because essentially it was because AI didn't work yet. And there had been, you know, waves of AI researchers in the 40s and 50s and 60s that thought they were on the cusp of breakthroughs that just never happened. And so that, you know, the field got discredited over and over again. A lot of the original cybernetic stuff, by the way, is like actually quite relevant. They had many of the same debates were happening today back then. There were like panics in the press about like, you know, rogue AIs. Norbert Wiener, you know, sounded a lot like a modern, modern AI doomer. So anyway, like there, there's this rich and storied history here, but like, the, you know, basically the moment has arrived. The breakthroughs are happening. 
certainly feels that way. Yeah, things work now. And I mean, it's just like, it's quite nearly a religious experience to like use one of these modern systems now and get back the answers. And you're just like, oh my God, like I, you know, I can't even believe I get to experience this. So that's on the plus side. And then on the, on the, on the minus side is just this like level of hysteria uh, and fear and panic. My diagnosis is there's something that's happened in the national mood you know, that's made us as a population, like we've probably always been prone to fear and panic historically. And there's certainly lots of, you know, lots of examples of that through history, but there's something in the national mood in the last five years, 10 years that has really put people on edge. Concerns get blown out to levels of just like hysteria and paranoia that I just kind of find staggering. And I think it's, 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 it's extremely dangerous. The Doomers had a run for a while. Um, uh, and uh, I decided finally I had, to, I had to put my two cents forward. There's a lot more content for the Doomers than there is on the optimistic side. And I yep. think being able to concretely articulate what we're going to get out of these technologies is vitally important. Certainly the way that you went point by point here, I mean, it was, it's, it's fairly compelling. Obviously, one of the hard things to articulate about how AI will have a positive impact is because it's such a general technology. I mean, at, at the dawn of the web, and the analogy that I always give people is like, this is 1994, and you're asking me for what the profit and loss of Snapchat is going to be. We just, right. we just don't know, but it's clearly powerful, right? Is it analogously powerful? Is this like at least as important as the web? You were there. Tell us. I'll start by saying this, like, I'm a real optimist that there's going to be a lot of innovation now, there's going to be a flood of really smart people joining the field and doing, I think, breakthrough work in the next 10, 20 years. And so, like, I, I'm a, I am an optimist on the speed of improvement from here, right? And, and, and by the way, that includes means I'm an optimist on, like, solving all the problems, you know, that could potentially hold, hold you know, hold this technology back from, from broad adoption. If, if the potential pans out the way I think it will, then we're talking about, yeah, internet scale. And, and you know, I don't say that lightly. Like, I don't, I don't compare many things to the internet. I never have, you know. And then I think also you got to think, like, for this one, you got to think in terms potentially of things like electricity and, and the microchip and, you know, steam power, like, a, you know, the printing press, like, a, you know, wow. right? A very small number of things where, you know, they define, you know, you can say they define like entire new eras. They're just like a permanent change in how in how everything works. This certainly feels like one. It's assuming that this works. It's hard to imagine that that this isn't of that level of impact. And it's it's because of how I. It's because of the the reason that I said when I started the essay, which is this is intelligence, right? Intelligence is like the fundamental building block for improving things. And up until now, the application of human intelligence has been the building block of improving things in the world. And now, if we're going to also have machine intelligence working with us on that. You know, it, it's hard to overstate the importance of the potential here, I think. Yeah, as you know, I'm you know a big optimist on technologies in general. And I think the idea that we ought to slow down and control these things early is a little, you know, it's, it's, it's a little worrying that we always rush to that as a civilization and as a society. I think it creates far more problems than it solves for us. But maybe a harder question. If you were to steel man your opponent's arguments, give them, give them the best case you could possibly give, what do you think that case is? Yeah, so the steel man of the other side is, is it's the so-called precautionary principle. The precautionary principle is an actual like thing, documented, studied, you know, analyzed, books on it, you know, lots of papers, great Wikipedia entry. It's sort of an ethical, ethical, you know, principle uh, that people propose, and it basically says if you're inventing a new technology, the inventors of the technology have a moral, ethical responsibility to identify and prevent all possible negative use cases. Uh, of the technology before they roll it out, right? The usual response to that is very straightforward, which is like, had we applied the precautionary principle through history, right, we would not have the internal combustion engine, the automobile. We wouldn't have fire. We wouldn't have fire, right? And, and I, I mentioned in the essay, like there's this, there's this central myth the Greeks had 
the myth of Prometheus, which 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 sort of encoded so the, the myth of Prometheus sort of encodes the precautionary principle in sort of a fundamental way, which right in the, the myth of Prometheus is Prometheus is uh, uh, brought fire to man, um, and in response, the uh, Zeus sentenced him to be uh, chained to a rock and have his liver pecked out every every single day for the rest of eternity. Right, so you know it's basically you you have turned you Prometheus have turned over this power. Right. And actually, in the myth, it's actually interesting. The power is actually the literal power of fire, but also for the Greeks that that represented what they called techni, which basically was, uh, you know, sort of technology and knowledge. Right. So, you know, sort of the ability to you know form new ideas and then be able to use those ideas on the world in, in the form of what we now call technology. So like right there in the very beginning, they were like, OK, fi-, you know, because, of course, fire can be used for like horrible things like fire has killed a lot of, you know, fire burns down entire cities. It's a weapon of war. People, you know, get, you know, got historically tortured with fire, you know, burned at the stake. But fire also, you know, like basically is responsible for the development of our entire civilization because it, it kept us warm during very cold nights and it, it let us cook food, uh, both of which were key to survival and, and then over time building larger tribes and communities. It's sort of the, the entire precautionary principle is kind of right there in, in, in the Prometheus myth. Now, to steel man the response to that, it would be, yeah, OK, Mark, like fire or like gunpowder or internal combustion engines. It's like, OK, maybe you shouldn't apply the precautionary principle to those because the, the, the specific dangers of those are localized. Right. Like fire is a threat to you if you're like near the fire, but not, you know, if you're not. You know, whereas the steel man argument goes, there are other technologies. And the usual one that people cite, like, is, is like nuclear weapons, uh, as an example of this, that basically say, you know, now we have technologies that are, you know, potentially global. Once there are global consequences, you have a moral obligation to apply the precautionary principle. That makes sense. And obviously, this is a technology that has global consequences. What do you say to the idea that because what we're building is essentially a a complementary good to human intelligence, more or less, right? What would you say to the idea that the main worry is it basically phrasing this differently? Is it a real worry that this is a technology that we could, in principle, lose control of in some in some very bad sense? Yeah. So maybe let me back up just for a second because I left I left myself hanging on the on the steel man of the precautionary principle argument. Yeah. The counter argument, and, and I like to use nuclear weapons for this. Uh, you know, nuclear nuclear technology because that was that was the heart of a lot of these ethical debates through the 20th century. You know, Christopher Nolan has this Oppenheimer movie coming out this summer, which is going to be a really big deal for all these discussions because it's going to kind of resurface all of these debates that, that happened around nuclear weapons and nuclear technology in the sort of you know 30s, 40s, 50s because that's you know could be central, I think, to the to, to the plot of this movie. And there's a whole saga there that's like incredibly interesting about, you know, the moral, the morals and ethics of the development of nuclear nuclear technology. But basically, like the precautionary principle, like in the, and it was really, by the way, developed in like the 70s and 80s with the, the rise of the modern environmental movement, you know, especially the Greens in Germany, ironically, for given what they're doing right now, shutting down all the nuclear plants, but in the middle of an energy war. But there was this debate around 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 nuclear energy. And, and you had Oppenheimer and you had Albert Einstein and you had all of these like incredibly eminent basically scientists at the time going around basically saying, you know, we have to, you know, we have to apply essentially the precautionary principle to nuclear technology. We have to put it back in the box. You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't develop this. You know, we regret inventing it. And, you know, of course, that was that was centered in on nuclear weapons. And there's a whole discussion we can have about nuclear weapons. There's, you know, there's obviously a big con case in nuclear weapons. There's also a big pro case in nuclear weapons, which is, you know, a lot of historians believe that the existence of nuclear weapons actually prevented World War Three. Right. In other words, they, they prevented a catastrophic land war in Europe 
right, in the 50s and 60s with the Soviet Union that would have probably killed 100 million people that didn't happen because of the mutually assured destruction of nuclear weapons. And so even with nuclear weapons, you can argue, you know, boy, like, you know, it was actually good that they were invented, that they actually, like, prevented a lot of death. But the precautionary principle, like, rebounded in a, in a spectacularly bad way around the specific topic of nuclear power. And, and this, is, this is very relevant uh, to the shape of the entire global energy industry, and it's incredibly relevant to all the issues around climate change and carbon emissions, which that basically, as it turns out, nuclear power is like by far the safest and cleanest form of scaled reliable energy that has ever been invented. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing to this day that's anything like it. It is, you know, far superior in practice to wind and solar because nuclear plants run 24-7 it's zero emission. And as long as you contain the relatively small amount of nuclear waste, like it has zero impact on the environment, it literally emits water, right? We couldn't predict the positive effects, right? If we had just applied the precautionary principle and saw nuclear power only in the form of weapons, uh, we would never have arrived at nuclear power. And, and, and the backlash in the culture against nuclear power has kind of created these absurd situations, like you mentioned, in, in Germany. Yeah, so this is the craziness that's now that we're now in, and so the it's actually funny. The Germans actually the, the cautionary principle is actually originally created by Germans in the like 1970s. The Green that's Movement there, and, right? And the Green Movement in Germany right now, right, just demanded and accomplished. A I think they shut down the last of their nuclear reactors. They're, they're in the process of doing it, and and there are two catastrophic consequences to that. Number one, that means they have to continue to buy oil from Russia, <laughs> which is they're funding the Russian war effort because they won't keep the nukes on. And then the other just incredible consequence of it is, of course, they want to cut over to other you know, so-called clean energies, um, particularly wind and solar. But wind and solar are not reliable. They don't run 24-7. And so as a consequence, uh, what, of course, Germany is doing um, is they're wrapping up coal. And of course, coal is like incredibly dirty. So this quote unquote ethical overlay of this thing where you think you've got this framework that basically says we can sort of sit on a sort of ethical Mount Olympus and we can make these judgments about these technologies and we can kind of play God and we can kind of decide this one should be allowed to develop and this one shouldn't. The, the nuclear thing is just such a classic example of like you have failed in every possible way, including according to your own criteria of success. Right. And you have failed so badly that you can't even bring yourself to acknowledge how badly you failed and you continue to make the same mistake. And it's literally been 50 years and you're still making the same mistake like in real right. time. This is my response to the, the steel man, which is just like th this entire attitude that there are these like basically, you know, high minded, abstract, you know, ivory tower utilitarian ethics that could be administered from, you know, from some sort of intellectual Mount Olympus. Like it just it doesn't work. We'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. 
and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Let me take maybe a hard right turn here. So we talked about nuclear, and I think nuclear is an interesting place to start. And your essay kind of alludes to this as well. Besides the, uh, you know, the Oppenheimer Union of Concerned Scientists, people who after after the atomic bomb um, really started this, you know, nuclear movement in the U.S., there was Johnny von Neumann, and Johnny von Neumann, once the United States had nuclear weapons, strongly advocated for their use against the Soviet Union as soon as possible. Uh, and there's that famous. Not speech, but that, that famous line he gave, which is like, if, if, uh, if you say we should start bombing uh, next month, I say, why not next week? If next week, why not tomorrow? If, if tomorrow, why not now? And, you know, you, you alluded to this idea of AI competition, and in some ways it resembles nuclear competition. So is that what we should be doing? Should we be just getting so far out ahead? What, what's analogous to achieving AI supremacy? There is context for what was happening then, and there is this very interesting historical par- comparison to what's happening now. And again, I, I think this is going to be in this movie, my hope anyway. You know, the United States developed the bomb uh, at the Manhattan Project, and then the Russians got the bomb. And the way the Russians got the bomb was American and, you know, other scientists who were working for the Americans, uh, some European scientists working for the Americans, gave the bomb to Russia. They, they gave Russia the designs. And, you know, there was, you know, Soviet subversion at the Manhattan Project. There were spy rings. Uh, and then, you know, Oppenheimer himself, there's dispute. This will probably be in the movie. There's dispute about exactly what he did. But, you know, he had multiple family members who were communists and, you know, there were a lot of people around him. And some set of these people did give Russia the bomb. And, you know, and, and, and they had, if you read like their writings and the things they said at the time, like, you know, they, again, felt like there was an ethical or moral judgment to be had here, which is, you know, they basically were like, look, if the Americans, if, the Amer- if only America has it and if the Soviet Union doesn't have it, then America is going to be tempted to do a first strike and it's going to be, you know, an imbalance of power. And so we need to get Russia, the, you know, but but they took it on themselves to do that now. We don't have an analogous situation like that. Like AI is not nuclear weapons. And, you know, it's, it's like we don't have the equivalent of the Soviet penetration of like the U.S. government and, and the U.S. like scientific establishment. However, that, that said, we do have a geopolitical rival, by the way, which happens to be a communist, <laughs> a communist state. And it is China. And so that, there, there is a geopolitical dynamic here. And I'm not even saying I have you know, an opinion on this, but I'm just just observing like tensions are heating up. Right. And so for a long time in American politics, there, you know, geopolitics, there was a sense that we should, you know, basically collaborate with China. Um, and, you know, there was this, the, the, the former kind of policy under both Obama and, and, and Bush was basically don't rock the boat, be friendly. Under both President Trump and President uh, Biden, you know, there's a big step up in, you know, tension on, on both sides. And look, China has identified AI as a national strategic priority. China has identified AI as something that is, you know, critically important to how their regime operates. They've identified AI as something that they plan to wire into their society. They've identified it as something that they tend to sp- they tend to spread their approach for it around the world. They're doing a lot of things in support of that. Uh, and they view it as core to everything, and they, and they view it as core to the, the way their military will operate. And Xi Jinping has given speeches and, and written papers about like how it's going to be the basis for the, the Chinese military. You know, and look in the U.S., we have a more of a decentralized, messy situation. So it's not as we're not as coherent uh, because our system is is different. But the U.S. military has identified that a, basically AI automation is what they call the third offset, which is basically the third major revolutionary technology that's going to be applied to the future for the American military, American warfare. This technology has repercussions for the future of geopolitics and the future of war. And there, there is an aspect to it that's incredibly important. 
there are very interesting questions for how information gets transferred between, you know, between between these countries and how, you know, China, in some cases, you know, ends up with, you know, designs for things invented in, in, in America. And so there there's at least an echo uh, of that uh, of that Cold War dynamic developing. And I think it's, it's certainly right. worth paying attention to. So to, taking this, you know, from the geopolitical dynamics back to the regulatory dynamics, to what extent do you agree with the idea that given that this is a technology of geopolitical importance, it's actually fairly in the U.S. government's interest to control and, and, and sort of at least, well, pr- heavily promote its development or at least intervene, given how important it seems to be in the future for the country? Yeah, so there's this line I quote in the essay, which I've always liked, and it's not even a political, it's not a political observation, it's a, just a general <laughs> strategic <laughs> observation, which is, again, if you kind of study the Cold War, there were all these debates in the 50s, 60s, 70s about how to deal with the Soviet Union and how to have, you know, peace or war, or, you know, how to avoid nuclear war and all these things. And, you know, Ronald Reagan came into office in 1980, and, you know, whether you like Reagan or not, he, he, he took a different approach. I and mean, he was asked what his strategy is vis-a-vis the, the Soviet Union, and his, his answer was, my strategy is we win, they lose. And at the time, it was very clarifying, because that had not been the strategy up until that point. And then directly relevant to this situation, the, the result of that was basically a surge. Uh, he surged money um, into R&D, into American R&D. And in particular, in that era, you know, the concern was still at that point, primarily nuclear weapons, right? Uh, nuclear exchange was the big thing that everybody worried about. And he surged money into a program known as the Strategic Defense Initiative, nicknamed SDI, which became colloquially known as, as Star Wars, uh, which was, you know, a, a missile defense system. And, and by the way, there's dispute to this day of could it have been made to work? Did it ever work? Will it ever work? There are smaller scale systems like uh, the you know Patriot missiles now that can you know shoot down you know incoming the smaller scale rockets. The Israelis have their Iron Dome system. Yep. Um, so the idea of SDI was basically like the Iron Dome, but for for ICBMs. And so anyway, like two possible outcomes from that surge of R&D. One was that they made it work, but the other was they just had to basically convince, as it turns out, the Soviet Union that, that, that there was a good shot that they were going to make it work. And it basically demonstrated to um, the Soviet Union that basically they, they just simply had reached the point by the 80s where they were not going to be able to keep up with U.S. science and technology. And, and they just basically could not continue trying to compete with the U.S. Like it, it just wasn't a feasible thing for the Soviet Union to compete with the U.S. anymore. And by the way, the, the you know, when the Soviet Union fell, like it fell with no bloodshed. It, it was like a remarkable, you know, kind of thing. And, and you know, and look, we have our issues with Russia today, but like, you know, a lot of empires fall. You know, it's a lot worse. Again, this is not a directly comparable situation. Nobody's suggesting the Chinese you know, regime is, is going to fall. Nobody's suggesting that we should try to make that happen. That, that's not the comparison. But there is going to be a country that is going to have technological superiority in this technology. And, and, and there are two choices. It is going to be us or it's going to be China. And, and both of these countries have global ambitions. And both of these country, countries have visions of, of global standards and norms uh, and global technological infrastructure in the shape of, of global societies. Both of these countries are acting on those, on those visions today. And, you know, whoever wins the AI race is going to determine a lot of the future of how, of how the entire, entire world operates. And so, it, yeah, I, I think it's, it's clearly in the interest of the United States economically, socially, uh, militarily, and in terms of national security. Um, we should absolutely make sure that, that, that we win this one in terms of the technology race. Right. So what, what concretely should the government be doing? Because in your essay, you concretely say they shouldn't be picking winners. What should they be doing? This goes to like the contrast with the Chinese communist you know, kind of system. And this also goes to how we won the Cold War, which is the big advantage that China has is that they can basically direct their private sector to do whatever they want, because all private companies in China are ultimately owned and controlled by the by the Communist Party. And so, you know, they, they can organize right in a, in a sort of central planned, coordinated way. You know, we we notoriously are bad at that. 
Why are we bad at that? Well, because, you know, we're a, more of a free society and then we have, you know, more of a free market. And in our system, you know, companies can kind of be subject to regulation, but companies are you know, free to make their own uh, decisions in a lot of areas uh, in terms of what they do. You know, and there's this old debate about, you know, the which system is superior. And I think we've, you know, long since proven capitalism works better than communism. But apparently, you know, some people think that's still an open question. But we have our system and our system, you know, worked well to win the Cold War with Russia. And basically, right, my proposition is we should use our system and its advantages to also, you know, win this Cold War. Again, with a very different a picture, a very different outcome here. But we, we should have the level of superiority that we need to make sure that the, the sort of Western vision is the one that prevails. First and most important thing, the government should leverage the, the, the private sector. For AI, of course, that means big companies, that also means startups, and then that also means open source. The all three categories of those players should basically be free to operate and compete. We can, we can go into detail um, on what that means. And then what should the government do? You know, a bunch of things. But one is, you know, look, a lot, a lot of, you know, everything in our world today is because the government funded a lot of historical basic research. Certainly the government, should, you know, has put a lot of money in AI research over the decades and should, you know, for sure should continue to do so. Second is the government should be a big leading edge uh, early adopter customer of all these new technologies. And actually, there's a fair amount of that happening. The, the, the government, especially the military and the intelligence agencies, actually buy a lot of the you know, new, you know, new products from, 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 the, you know, from, from startup you know, companies, including the ones doing AI. And then historically, open source has been you know, a phenomenally beneficial technology for our economy and for the technology that, that we all build um, and that we, you know, we should certainly, you know, in the form of everything from Linux to GNU to, you know, to everything else. And, and we should for sure continue to, to, to foster and enable that and not do anything to, to prevent it. If we do those things, then our system will kind of operate as design. Um, and then from there, there's like a whole bunch of like a la carte things that, you know, can be done on top of that. But that, but that will give you the foundation for kind of the, the, the race to technological superiority that, that, that I think we would then be in a good position to win. Right. So it's not it's not a Manhattan project. It's it's much yeah. more. It's much. What, what is it analogous to in, in the history of American industry, would you say? Yeah, well, it's, it's like it's like everything else other than, than the Manhattan project. Everything besides the Manhattan project <laughs> and, right. and the Apollo project. Right. Apollo is, Apollo is kind of maybe a different case because they had so many contractors and subcontractors and sub subcontractors. A lot of a lot of fairly small private businesses contribute to that, too. Um, but I understand that. I understand what you're getting at there. Manhattan Project was a military project. The Manhattan Project had two heads. Uh, Oppenheimer was the scientific head, but they had General Groves, who was the military head, and he, he ran the project. And it was run by, by the U.S. military, right? And, and look, that made sense then. You know, I mean, look, in the, in, the, in the heat of World War II, and you, know, you were dealing with like, nuclear material, and everything was classified, and you put everybody in the desert to develop a bomb. Like, that was a very specific thing at a very specific moment in time. You know, this is not that. If the Manhattan Project ever happens again, it's not going to be in the world we live in today. It's, things are going to have to go much worse than they're going now Great. to have another one of those. And so let's, let's hope that never happens. And then, yeah, look, Apollo Project was like a 1960s thing. And it was, to your point, it was, there was a lot of contractors, but it was a government. It was like a you know, Kennedy-Camelot era. The U.S. government is going like, to lead the way and organize everything. I, I think the odds of us doing anything like that are not, are, are not high anymore. I think the examples we look at, I think it's more, probably the closest analogy period would be what's known as the Second Industrial Revolution, which is, call it roughly 1880 to about 1930. That was the period where a lot of the modern world got built. And so that was automobiles, it was electricity, it was radio, it was television, you know, modern logistics, it was, you know, the, the beginning actually of computers. So basically what, we, what today we consider to be modern, modern industrial society, you know, sort of modern mechanical, electrical, uh, you know, kind of society. That was a free market phenomenon. 
but look, with government programs along the way that, that you know, that steered deployment and, you know, expanded or steered or expanded deployments a different way. There were the U.S. military adopted all of those technologies. Aircraft, right, was in that same era. You know, the other thing that happened was you had big government pushes at the time, like, you know, the Tennessee Valley Authority and so forth that would do like rural electrification. And so there was a there was there were private, you know, public private kind of partnerships kind of through that period. But fundamentally, what was happening was free market entrepreneurship, um, you know, scientific and technical innovation. And then, you know, large scale, you know, General Electric and General Motors and IBM. Right. And these kind of, you know, now, you know, kind of legendary American companies for motor company built Westinghouse, right, built at scale to deliver these technologies to the masses. And I, I think that's that, that's a better comparison. Yeah, I think I think that's pretty reasonable. We touched briefly on cybernetics at the start of the space. And I want to talk a little bit about AI and centralization. So, first of all, centralization, first of all, in its possibility to be regulated, AI still requires a lot of compute. That compute lives in only a few data centers around the United States. To do anything useful with it today, you, you need significant compute power. So that seems like an easily regulatable bottleneck should the regulator choose to go after it. And secondly, uh, around another question around centralization is cybernetics developed in the Soviet Union eventually as a system of, uh, basically they wanted to do central planning using yep. computers, right? Yep. And so do you see a potential future in which Let's say let's say there is some compounding effect of a company which manages to develop AI, and you can imagine. So Amazon is a, is essentially an internally uh, almost a cybernetic economy, and you can imagine on with AI built on top of that, that centralization could compound. I was wondering if you could speak to both of those things, both the centralization of compute necessary to run AI, and then the possible centralizing powers of AI itself. So sitting here today, there's a massive question in the technology itself that you alluded to. And then basically it, it goes as follows, which is basically, okay, why do these things work? Like why does GPT-4 work as well as it does? Why does Midjourney work as well as it does and so forth? And, and you know, the, the answer, you know, basically that you get back is, you know, innovation is basically on three fronts, um, you know, algorithmic improvements, but then, you know, basically the scale of available training data, which now means like, you know, internet scale training data, like the complete internet corpus of text or images, and then large scale, highly efficient compute, right? More basically, you know, the, the long awaited kind of culmination of Moore's law, you know, resulting in, you know, these, these giant, you know, basically grids of, of, of GPUs. If you talk to the practitioners, you know, the people who kind of build this stuff, you know, what they'll tell you is, yeah, the algorithmic improvements have been important, but a lot of this has just simply been the size of the data. Um, and then the size of the of, of the compute grids, and then what that basically says is there is a big scale component here, and of course you you know you you see this in in how much money these companies raise. And, you know this is not the first technology to kind of have that characteristic. In fact, arguably this is kind of the normal way that maybe computers generally have been an exception to this. This is maybe norm, the normal way industrial technology evolves. Just to give you one precedent for this, so actually originally uh, telephone networks in the U.S. were actually patchwork level at the neighborhood level, and then this guy Theodore Vail basically organized this company AT and T. Um, and he said, look, there's going to be net network effects, mean, you know, economies of scale means there's going to be exactly one phone system for the U.S. There's going to be one. Right. And the reason there's going to be one is because, like, once you have one, it doesn't make sense to have others. And, and one is going to be the most efficient because then anybody can call anybody else. Right. And actually, what he did was he, he went to the federal government and basically said, I'm going to build a monopoly. And, and basically, I want you to just, like, regulate me up front. I need to build this as a monopoly. I need to build this as like right. a social network effect. I right. was looking for an example of this. I was looking for an example of an industry in United States history that asked to be regulated before it really even existed. And there you go. I was looking for this. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. And so that's a little bit different than in this case, because in this case, I think what you have is the push for a cartel or an oligopoly. In that, in that case, it was a flat out push for a monopoly. 
he actually got the monopoly. Um, that happened. This is the old AT&T. They ran that monopoly for like 80, 70 years, uh, basically without competition. You know, when I was a kid in the 70s, like long distance calls cost on the order of, I think, a dollar a minute. And that was in 1970s dollars, <laughs> which were worth a lot more. And then there was this famous case in 1984. There was this famous antitrust case where AT&T was broken up. And there's actually a great book called The Deal of the Century where they, they talk about the breakup. And, the, and the, the, the rage that came out around that breakup was so intense. There were these incredible fights that took place. And, uh, but AT&T was so entrenched in the government that they ultimately, uh, the Secretary of Defense, Casper Weinberger, ultimately testified before Congress. And he testified that if uh, the U.S. Department of Justice moved ahead with breaking up AT&T um, and creating competitive telecommunications you know, industry, that it would permanently impair uh, U.S. military command and control systems, including control of the nuclear weapon systems, and basically render there it the is. U.S. Everything is all connected. Everything ends up being connected. <laughs> exactly. Now, the U.S. government, as it turns out, they didn't, they didn't buy it. The, the Reagan Justice Department actually didn't buy it. And they, and they actually, and the judge in the case didn't buy it. And so they, they actually broke up AT&T. And the, and the fact that they broke up AT&T is actually what led to the internet. It led to the possibility of the internet because AT&T executives, and in fact, research scientists in a lot of cases had no intention of letting like a packet switch network work. They didn't like believe in it. They, they certainly would not have wanted a competitive system. They certainly would never have allowed like VoIP or any of these things. So it's this case of like, okay, they had the monopoly, they lost the monopoly. Because they lost the monopoly, it unleashed a wave of innovation that resulted literally in the internet. And so it's like a great case study of the trade-offs here. And, I, and, and like I said, there, there's no, I don't think we're heading into a world where there's a single monopoly here. Like there are multiple large companies that have the wherewithal to be able to do this. And, you know, it doesn't need to be necessarily a single network effect. But on, on the other side, there is both, I would argue, the technological possibility. And then there's also, I think, the policy uh, you know, quite frankly, just like obviously like better scenario, which is you just know you actually have like a lot more free market competition. You have a lot more bottoms up innovation. You, you don't just have a few big companies doing AI. You have, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of companies doing and open source projects doing different things. Um, and then you have an explosion of AIs at every level of scale. You've got little micro baby ones running on, you know, household appliances. Um, you've got, you know, the big cosmic god models, you know, running, running with the big companies are running. And then you've got lots, you know, every business is going to have its own, every, you know, big company is going to have its own AIs. And, and you, every university will have its own AIs. Every, you know, researcher and scientist will be building their own AIs. And, you know, you'll basically have AIs at many different kinds of scale. And you could make different arguments as to where the technology wants to go. But the one thing I know is, right, if you basically centralize and bless an oligopoly that, you know, are the only companies that, practically speaking, can do AI, then you guarantee you're not going to have that explosion of innovation. And, and, and so there's like a path dependence to where this goes, right? Because people are not going to work on it if it's not legal. The shape of the technology will help determine the regulation, but very importantly, the shape of the regulation will determine the future of the technology. And I think there's a big danger here that this goes in the wrong direction. Yeah, that's a big worry. So I, I'm, I'm very gratified here to see a lot of you know founders in AI, a lot of researchers in AI uh, here in this space. And I, I want to take this conversation. This is the last question for me, and I might open it up. But I was going to ask, we are facing a time where we are obviously in the upswing of an AI hype cycle. Probably, I would say it was kicked off by Midjourney uh, and, and David's in the audience, ChatGPT, and you know, stable diffusion to some extent, like started to kick off this cycle. Now, every time there's a new hype cycle in technology, you get these kind of tourists and entryists who raise a bunch of money for a century vaporware. And the previous AI winters have all occurred because 
and we, we alluded to that, we talked about this at the start of the space, have all occurred because there has been this enormous overpromise of the capabilities that AI, AI could deliver versus what it actually delivered in the long run. One of my concerns as a founder in this space is running into another AI winter. Obviously, you as a pretty successful venture capitalist have been through these cycles before. What would you have to say to sort of founders of the space who are worried about this tourism and entryism? Yeah, so I have a different historical interpretation, and maybe it's just because I've had different experiences. But my, my experience when you have like an AI winter or another winter in any other technology is my experience is it's not because of the entryists or the you know, speculative bubble or anything like this. My experience is it's because it doesn't work. And, and I want to be very clear what I mean by like it doesn't work because working for like commercial technology is actually a, v- a very complicated thing. In other words, the technology has to work. It has to like actually functionally deliver res- compelling results. Right. But then not just that, it also has to be packaged up in a way that it can be sold and bought. Right. It, ha- it has to actually be deployed into real world environments. It has to actually be affordable. Right. Which turns out to be really critical. You know, look, it has to basically fit into society like it, it has to people have to be psychologically ready for it. Companies have to be willing to, you know, sociologically adopt it. You know, broader society has to be willing to embrace it. And so there's like this magic formula we can talk about, which is basically that technology that like basically doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work across sort of repeated waves of enthusiasm and and crashes right in winters. And then at some point, it's like, oh, now it works. Um, And I'll just give you just a couple really simple examples of that. The first like actual handheld quote, sort of quote unquote smartphone was I think I traced it back to Radio Shack in 1982 later General Magic in 1993. And then, you know, it wasn't really until the iPhone. And actually really wasn't really until the iPhone plus the App Store in like 2010, you know, that it really worked. You know, look, the internet was invented in in the 1960s, deployed in the 1970s, but didn't quote unquote work as a consumer offering until like 1994. And so you often have these things where it, it takes time to kind of get all of these magic kind of pieces of alchemy kind of to come together. And and so to me, like that's that's the thing that causes the wave you know, each, each successive wave to either, you know, fail or succeed is like, does it work? And then it's like, if, if, if it doesn't work, like there's no amount of hype, you know, there's no amount of either seriousness or hype that can sustain an investment wave. And then if it does work, like, honestly, it kind of doesn't matter how much hype and enthusiasm there is because it works, right? And the hype and enthusiasm will lead to all the things that you see with speculative, you know, over people getting overly enthusiastic and too much, you know, a lot of bullshit and like parties start to get crazy. And like, there's you know, a lot of fake companies and like, yeah, there's, you know, I, you know, a lot of broken IPOs because there's a lot of fake companies go public. And like, there's, there's all these kind of undesirable kind of things around the edges. But at the core of it, like, if you have something that works, you're not going to go through that same kind of like fundamental crash where everybody's going to, you know, basically like write the whole thing off again. Even the internet, it's actually funny. We kind of went through this with the, with the internet because, you know, we had like this massive, obviously, wave of, say, enthusiasm and, and uh, exuberance, you know, between basically 94 to, you know, 99 into 2000. And then we had the, you know, the dot-com crash hard in 2000. And there were people in 2000 and 2001 and 2002 that said just the internet is over. But there weren't very many of them because basically it was working, right? And, and it actually like kept growing all the way through the dot-com bust. And came out the other end, and obviously did very well in the twenty in the twenty years that followed. And so, so anyway, so so my sense is that this technology AI now works like in this way that is actually very useful for a lot of people for a lot of things. Every time you go through this, there's going to be some level of speculative like overinvestment and overenthusiasm. I think that's just kind of human nature. We can talk about that, but I, I think that's going to happen. I just don't think it matters as much as the fundamental fundamental question of like does this thing work? And by the way. If the thing doesn't work, then the fundamental question very much is like, how, how, you know, how do you make it work, which is what a lot of very smart entrepreneurs, you know, obviously are, are working on every day right now. 
that's, I think that's really good perspective. Given our conversation, any closing thoughts? This, this is the universe that's handing us collectively like an incredible opportunity. This is what it must have felt like, you know, when like Thomas Edison like figured out electricity, right? Or David Sarnoff figured out, you know, radio or, or one of these moments, or Marconi figured out radio. It's one of these moments. You've been gifted in life with like, there's going to be one of these things that's, that's like a turning point. This incredible general purpose technology that, you know, potentially could be applied to everything. There's, there are enormous numbers of problems to be solved. There's fundamental scientific questions. There's engineering questions. There's application questions. There's, you know, there's, you know, social questions. Like a big counter argument to my entire thing is like, look, it doesn't even like the doomers don't even matter because like the cat's already out of the bag. You've got, you know, whatever, 100 million people using, you know, ChatGPT and whatever number of million people using, you know, the, the journey and its, its, its peers. And, 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 you know, people love it and they use it every day and it's great. Um, and then, you know, the open source stuff, like it's like every day I see some new open source thing where I'm just like, wow. I actually not remember the name of the thing today, but there was a thing today where there was like compression was the quantizing compression to get, what is it, 33 billion parameter models running on a single CPU. It was, it was like another big breakthrough today. You know, and then what was it, Laura was like, what, how long ago was Laura? Like a month, two months ago or something. Every so, week like, feels like a year. one of these moments where like it's, you know, consumer enthusiasm, I think it's going to be very high here. Look, every CEO I talk to is trying to figure out what to do with AI in their business. And then the, the open source stuff is going to be phenomenal. There's going to be a huge entrepreneurship boom here. I think it's just going to be an incredibly exciting time, and there's going to be opportunities to really, I think, do amazing things with this technology. And ultimately, that's what we should keep our eye on and not you know, all these sort of irrational panics. Strongly, strongly agree. And I'm going to bring up some people. And you know, I've got Amjad. I've got you up here. You know, have you got something to add? Mark, if, if, you're, like a, if you're like a young hacker, like you were you know, uh, when you invented the first uh, browser, uh, what would you do to kind of sort of advance the thing that you talked about in the in the piece today about how to, how to just like make the world a better place with with AI and and sort of make sure it doesn't get sort of captured. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, look, there's tons and tons and tons of interesting things to be done, and a lot of those obviously involve you know building companies. I do think we're at a moment in time though when what happens in the open source world is going to be absolutely critical, and and that's already the case. You know, it's going to be a lot more so in the future. Like, if open source has worked in the past then this is going to be a, you know, a universally available technology that's going to basically be, you know, something that is owned by all of humanity for, you know, for centuries to come. And it's going to be a tremendous, you know, I think, boon to the entire world. You know, and you see a lot of this work already happening, but the work that's kind of happening simultaneously in open source land to both, you know, try to figure out how to, you know, basically get models to run on, on practical levels of hardware without requiring a big company behind it. Um, but then also, you know, to be able to have the models be really good. I'll give you an example. So one of the questions that I think about a lot and that I'd tr be trying to work on is like, you know, in what scenarios specifically are people going to be are going to be willing to use in production, in deployment on a daily basis models that are not the biggest models, you know, that are not the, you know, kind of God models that, you know, cost whatever billion dollars. Exactly under what circumstances are people going to use the smaller models? Because if the sponsor is just, oh, you know, they're cheaper, but like, you know, the answers aren't as good. Then that suggests that maybe, you know, there actually is here going to be a large amount of centralization because, you know, maybe people then are just going to be like, well, I, I you know, I want my intelligence to actually be like smart. Um, and so I'll pay more and I'll, I'll just, you know, kind of, you know, feed off the, the, the grid of one of, of one of the big companies. And, and by the way, there are a lot of people who will do that. And that'll be, I think, a great business for them. But, you know, if there are lots and lots of use cases, like if the if the open source technology makes it straightforward to be able to have dozens and then hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands of use cases where companies that are doing very or people who are doing very different kinds of things can have models that are, you know, tailored and customized and trained in different ways. 
that are like, you know, as good or better than if they just like plugged into, a, you know, a, a supercomputer grid. That will help shape the future of the world in a way where this technology is much more universal. That's probably the single biggest thing that could happen. And, and I'm John, I, you know, obviously going through this, I know that what, what you're doing at, at Replit is a great example of this right now. And that's what we do at Replit. You know, we'll prototype with the mega models. And then over time, we'll train more specialized models that could take over like one function or one subset or one layer. It's an exercise in, in engineering, but you know, you can get very far with with a really big model. But I think over time, companies are gonna want to cut costs and improve their margins. And so they, they would invest in open source. And you know, what's really cool now is that like open source was getting kind of boring to be honest, but now we have a new type of open source technology and like it is similar to the old one where there are libraries and there are frameworks and there are firmware, there are operating systems. You got to fork them and remix them. And and now with with LLMs, we have all sorts of new different primitives. Like, you know, you can open source uh, instruct data sets. You can open source a different kind of data set. Other people could uh, remix them or fork them. You can open source a fine tuning framework. You can open source of model weights and people can fine tune those. And you see this new sort of software evolutionary system that's growing in front of our eyes. And it's incredibly exciting. I think really like coming up in software now gives you like really new tools and new toys to play with. And there's there's going to be a ton of companies to build around these things. Like, you know, for example, the the use case that I mentioned, which is taking uh, something you did really easily with a mega model and being able to uh, translate that or distill that into a small model, that should be really one click. Like, I should be able to send a prompt to service and just say, like, hey, like, distill a model, like a you know, three billion parameter model for for this prompt, and it has to do really well on these tests that I, you know, accumulated in, in running this in production. And I think that will be possible over the next year or so. So you've got these examples like AT&T with the phone system or with like maybe with search where you ended up with, you know, one or two or three kind of big search companies, you know, where you had this intense centralization. But like the computer itself actually like went the other way. It actually went very decentralized. And, and the history there is actually very entertaining because when IBM first released the first literally computer, the first electronic computer, the first mainframes, you know, there's this famous quote, which is actually something that he that, that was actually said at the time that Thomas Watson ran IBM. He said that basically the entire world market for computers is basically five five computers, and it was literally it was two for the U.S. government, and then it was three for the big insurance companies, and that was it. And in fact, IBM in those days they were almost completely dominant in the computer industry. They actually didn't sell computers; they only leased them, because the you know the theory basically was like there's just going to be this, these like giant centralized monoliths um, that that they actually so wanted to be able to own and control. You know, look, fast forward, whatever, 70 years and, you know, the world we live in today, you know, we're all surrounded by computers every day, including, you know, chips that are like absolutely tiny and, you know, cost almost nothing that are embedded in everything around us. And, you know, there are operating systems at different levels of scale and complexity all around us and programming environments and application frameworks and user interfaces, you know, of just like dizzying variety. You know, the typical car has like, what is it, 200 chips now? you know, just the car and you're, you're, you know, in your house is, you know, probably another, you know, probably, but for most people, another 200, 300, 400 chips. And so, you know, the world I want to live in is the one where, you know, that's exactly what happens with AI. And there are micro AIs taking care of door access and, and other things. And then, you know, all scaled all the way up to the, you know, scaled all the way up to the God models that are, you know, curing cancer and developing warp drive. 
uh, and kind of every every intermediate stage. Like that, that, you know, that that would be my ideal outcome. Yeah, I think that's that's what's going to be necessary. Ben from Wombo, you want to come up here? Yeah. Uh, hey, Mark. Hey. My question is on the compute side. Our apps have been used by over a hundred million people, and compute has always been our primary bottleneck. And earlier in the conversation, you know, we spoke about the necessity of huge amounts of compute, both to train and run inference on new models. So I have two kind of connected questions here. The first, what opportunity, if any, do you see in sort of crowdsourced compute networks as consumer hardware becomes more powerful and you have like, you know, flagship MacBooks and smartphones that are pretty capable of running these AI workloads? And second, when will A16Z have its own cloud that its portfolio companies can use? Yeah, so no no comment on number two, um, but uh, yeah, look on number one. So a couple things. So one is like, look, we're we're just in a weird moment of time here. There's a very unusual thing happening, which is there's a chip shortage. And it's just really unusual to have a chip shortage. Like that's not typically, typically the chip companies have more chips to sell than they can sell. You know, and look, the shortage is for the best of all possible reasons, which is it just turns out like AI works. And, uh, you know, it turns out that there's this magic kind of chip, you know, the GPU, um, you know, that's best for it. And there's just a, you know, there's just a bottleneck right now. It's just a logistical bottleneck. I literally making up GPUs, you know, the GPU vendors, I think would love to be able to make more. They're, they're working as hard as they can. And then look, chips historically, the market for chips, you know, is, is, is like a lot of other markets where, you know, there's the, the adage kind of is, you know, the, the cure for high prices is high prices. You know, the cure for low demand is low demand, right? Which is to say when there's a supply demand imbalance like there is now, then there's a big profit motive, right, opportunity for, you know, the existing companies or, or other companies to kind of, you know, come in and step in and, you know, cre- you know create, create a lot more supply. And so, you know, everybody, everybody in the chip industry, everybody in the world saw, you know, has seen NVIDIA success. They saw NVIDIA top a trillion dollar market cap. You know, they're seeing AI work and they're, you know, everybody in that world is just like, okay, now we know what to do. Uh, we need to go build GPUs or TPUs or other forms of, of, of AI chips. So I am pretty confident that at some point within the next, call it, I don't know, I, I'm going to be an optimist and say maybe two years this is going to resolve. Um, you know, if history is a guide, at some point there's going to be a GPU surplus, but we're probably quite a ways uh, away from that. So a lot of the drama around compute right now is going to, I think, you know, over time fade. And then, by the way, what's going to happen is obviously everything's going to get cheaper. And so there's going to be a lot of competition. There's going to be a lot of uh, innovation. Um, you know, there's already a lot of work, work happening to kind of make all this stuff cheaper, including at the, at the hardware level. But then also at the software level, right, there's a huge amount of work going into also, you know, shrinking the, the compute footprint required at the software uh, level as well. So so I think that's all going to happen. And then you you alluded to, I think the other thing is going to happen, which is there are going to be basically grid, you know, networks, decentralized networks. We're very enthusiastic about, for example, the idea of applying, you know, kind of crypto blockchain, you know, kind of Web3 economics to this is, is sort of one idea. Of, you know, I'm sure there are, people will have other ideas. Um, you know, there are precedents for this with projects like Folding at Home um, and SETI at Home for kind of large scale distributed grids. You could also point to like Bitcoin and BitTorrent as two other examples. And so, yeah, look, a lot of people have, you know, very powerful supercomputer equivalent, you know, MacBooks or whatever sitting around. And to the extent that there is a literally a shortage of compute cycles or just a desire to have a level of freedom, you know, away from being kind of tethered to big systems. Um, I think there's a really big opportunity to kind of do decentralized compute. And that's another, by the way, another area of open source that I'd be very enthusiastic about is, is um, you know, or startups um, it is enabling technology for, for doing decentralized training. I think that will play an important role here as well. 
Yeah. All right. Beth, what question have you got for Mark? Yeah, thanks for the wonderful write-up, Mark. Uh, it's been really awesome to see this uh, movement grow from uh, a grassroots movement on the internet to front and center now of the <laughs> culture war, I guess. But um, yeah, so you know, as we can see, the oligopoly and the incumbents are like moving pretty rapidly politically. We kind of lead a, as you know, a grassroots movement online of like fighting the mimetic war against the doomers and decels, as we call them. And those kind of like doomers and decels are being co-opted right now into for regulatory capture. Basically, the incumbents are using the fear to fire up the governments and uh, get them to crown them uh, as the emperors of, of the AI world forever. What what do we do to, to stop this? Like, you know, we kind of feel powerless as like founders or young people on the internet that want to live in a free market of models, free market of ideas, a free market of software uh, and AI. And uh, Yep, exactly. <laughs> the bad news is that's happening. The bad news is there's there's a uh, there's this old thing that has to do with involvement in, in government affairs, which is, um, you know, sort of when people get kind of special treatment from the government, which is the people who want special treatment are, are a very concentrated minority and they have a very easy time organizing. Um, and then the people who would actually suffer from that, which is like everybody else, is sort of a decentralized majority. And the problem with the decentralized majority is they have a very hard time organizing. And so basically there's this there can be these moments where these like very small groups of people basically snake in and uh, are able to, you know, kind of basically use the government uh, to their own ends before the broader population has figured it out. I think visibility is part of it. It's one, one of the reasons I, you know, I wrote my piece. You know, look, another part of it is going to be there is going to need to be direct engagement in D.C. Um, and people who are on the side of, you know, the, the, the sort of sort of, of more decentralization, more freedom, you know, less less of a cartel approach. They are going to need to get more involved in politics, and you know that. By the way, that that includes me and uh, and, uh, and and my firm. And then look, there, I think you heard it. You heard it here. Mark Andreessen kind of is regular, running for president. Kind of regular people can do who aren't directly involved in, in in DC. And so one is just like, look, if there is a decentralized movement, if there's a decentralized grassroots bottom up movement that catches fire, that a lot of people are in, and they like are visible and public and make noise. Uh, and make themselves known, and the politicians figure out that there's a constituency and a voter base, and you know there are people that are basically surfacing these things and care about it. That, that does start to tilt the politics. And then the final thing, honestly, is like it goes back to open source. One of the reasons I'm enthusiastic about about all the open source work right now is, honestly, a big part of this is I think it needs to be a fait accompli. And you know I don't say that lightly, but there's no question this technology is good, and I think that this technology should be very universally available for all the reasons I described in my piece. And like just simply having that be a reality and have it be something that basically cannot be easily shunted aside in favor of a government-blessed cartel is a big part of it. And so I think everybody contributing to that on the, on the technical side is also actually really helping right now. Uh, one last question. We'll bring up Pessimist Archive. Uh, we'd love to hear what they have to say. Hi, Mark. Thanks for referencing our piece. So obviously, you know, in 1863, Samuel Butler wrote his screed against the machines um, and called for basically an end to technological progress. And a thought experiment I've been running is, what if people had listened to him then? Um, And think of all of the progress and suffering that would have continued and made a, create a future that was less dystopian. And my question is, what progress do you think is most at risk and what invisible victims are you most worried about if AI is slowed down or overregulated? You sort of identify the nature of the problem, right? So the na- nature of the problem is kind of like we know what we have today, right? And this this is true, for example, for employment, for jobs. This is true for like you know, the balance of power in the world. You know, this is true for how things work today. Like we know what we have today. We know the level of material wealth that we have. We know that we have the sort of systems that we have, the status hierarchies, the power structures that we have. 
like we have this today. By the way, you know, we kind of take all that for granted, right? Because we just inherited it, right, from people who came before us. Like, you know, to the point of what you guys do at the Pessimist Archive, like every previous generation had these kinds of fights about all the progress that was happening back then. The only reason we have everything we have today from to the Internet to roads and cars and everything else because, you know, people like us 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago fought hard to make those things happen against objections that are very similar to what we're hearing today. We, we take for granted everything we've inherited. Like, I, I just think it's just obvious, like we have a moral responsibility, you know, not just to ourselves, but to future generations. Like, you know, we have to carry, we have to carry that forward and we have to make sure progress doesn't stop with us and we have to make sure that it continues. And, and, and we should be aiming for a world and, you know, 30 years from now where, you know, we and our children and then ultimately our grandchildren and great-grandchildren are just living in a much better world, right? A much safer world, a much more peaceful world, a much more interesting world, uh, a much more materially prosperous world, you know, a world of much less disease and suffering, whatever, however you want to define a better world, that we're going to live in that world. And the way to live in that world is to invent the technologies and proliferate the technologies that will make that, make that possible. So, so I think we have to do that. The, the asymmetry in it is, you know, you can't see all those things because they don't exist yet. <laughs> Right. And so it, it's, it's all what, what economists call it's all opportunity cost. Right. Uh, the, the, the cost of the slowdown. Right. The cost of implementing the precautionary principle is all the things that don't happen that you don't see. Right. And then basically people can say, well, you know, you know, we're not missing anything because we, you know, we didn't know that we uh, we had it. You know, you do have to use some imagination to be able to say that a, a better world is possible. The thing that's just so compelling to me about AI, you know, that I talk about in the piece is the fact that intelligence intelligence can make everything better. And so this is one of those things where you can point to any area of the world that you think needs to be improved, right? And so just as a very simple example, healthcare, right, and curing diseases, AI is going to make that better. Like there's just no quiet. That's already underway. I'll just give you an example. There's a, there's a writer's there's a writer strike. I'll give you an example in the domain. There's a writer strike happening in Hollywood right now, and the writers are all up in arms. It started out as a strike about streaming rights, and then it turned into an AI strike kind of halfway through. But like, look, like AI is going to give <laughs> the screenwriter should not be, in my view, should not be striking about AI. They should be like rushing headlong to try to embrace it as quickly as possible, because when you take like modern image generation and sound generation AI technologies and you give them to a screenwriter, it's going to be possible for screenwriters to make their own movies, right? Like the screenwriter is going to write the movie and then the, the, the machine is actually going to render everything, right? Yeah, they um, don't need Hollywood anymore, right? So yeah, or or the shape of Hollywood changes, and the same writers that are you know scared of AI right now all of a sudden realize actually they're in a much more powerful position because they, they're not as dependent anymore on the directors and the actors and they can actually take more control over the creative process. So this is what's so enticing about this technology. It's like a general purpose technology. It's intelligence. And so you just pick an area where you think the world ought to work better and you say, well, what if, what if, what if we were smarter? And, and if there's a way for you to kind of say, okay, if we were smarter, we would be able to do this better, you know, then, then, then there's going to be a, there's going to be massive benefit from that. And I, I, I think in the fullness of time that implies, that applies to, you know, literally hundreds of areas of, you know, kind of human challenge and toil and, you know, unhappiness and risk and danger, you know, today that we take for granted that hopefully 30 years from now and 50 and 100 years from now, you know, our children and grandchildren will be like, wow, I, you know, I can't believe, I can't believe grandpa lived in the old world, right? Like, I can't believe grandpa lived in a world where people drove cars, you know, 70 miles an hour. And, and the way that they kept the cars from running each other, into each other was they painted a, a line down the center of the road. Right. And like and and then, you know, people got like, you know, drunk or distracted. And then they were like ran into each other and killed each other. Like like how primitive were those people in 2023 that that's the world that they were living in? You know, that's the kind of vision that you want to have, which is that there will be a much better world for our children and grandchildren that will just yeah. will, 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 that they'll be much happier. in. I think that's right. This has been really great. I think that what comes out of this is more definite optimism around this technology and, you know, seeing it as a path toward the future rather than something to become yet another political football. 
SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.